Hello everyone, welcome down to Snow's History. Have I, have I got a treat for you this time? I've got Stephen Taylor on the podcast. He's a, a writer that I've, I've long enjoyed reading. He's written wonderful books about naval history in the long 18th century. And you know, you know me, I'm a bit of a sucker for that. His latest book is on the common sailors, the experience of the sailors, the men before the mast. Not the officers, but the men at the sharp end. And rather than being the sort of illiterate, uh, brutally punished, press-ganged, uh, anonymous... A group of people that we might, that the myth tells us they are. Actually, Stephen has found a rich set of historical sources to tell the story of these sailors. We had a great chat. If you want to watch uh, maritime history, please head over to historyhit.tv. It's a new digital history channel. It is going crazy at the moment, which is really exciting. We've got lots of commissions uh, underway, lots of exciting things, lots of exciting bits of history that we are, are looking into. Um, you can get a History Hit TV. You can watch the whole thing if you want. But it's one pound euro or dollar. If you use the code POD1, P-O-D-1, just enter it in, you get the first month for free, and then they get the second month for just one pound a year or a dollar. It's pretty sweet. We've got a new documentary about Stonehenge up there, including the latest research, exciting stuff, you've got to check that out. And we've also got a new young historian, Luke Pepera, he's talking about Africa and how it's largely been written out of British history. So please, please go and check all those new films out. Uh, it's really, really exciting. And if you want to get a face covering, if you want to cover your face, because you should uh, around the world stop the spread of COVID, please go to historyit.com slash shop to buy your historical face covering. You're going to absolutely love them. My favourite so far is the jawline of Abraham Lincoln. Uh, go and check that out. In the meantime, everyone, here is Stephen Taylor. Enjoy. Stephen, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. My pleasure indeed. Well, it's my pleasure because I love talking about this period and sailors in this period. But what, what, is the, what is the myth, do you think, that you're grappling with about the men who sailed in these ships? I think it's the, uh, the widespread perception that has been bequeathed to us by oh, a variety of histories that this was a terrible, frightening and uh, a, a, suffer, a suffering way of life. That these were men who were invariably press-ganged uh, you know, images of the press gang are absolutely typical of the period, usually cudgel-wielding brutes tearing some forlorn figure from his family. And it's true, of course, that press gangs were uh, an ugly fact of naval policy in wartime. But many men actually went to sea voluntarily. And if we examine the history, the records, and the voices of these men themselves, they are not the put-upon sufferers uh, that we associate with the common seamen. They are, in fact, a proud and, um, uh, it must be said, triumphant uh, tribe. Uh, because, essentially, we come back to the point, I think, repeatedly. And it's not just a matter of naval history, um, although that's absolutely key to British uh, turning Britain into the superpower of the age, as it were. But there's so many other aspects of the seafaring economy that transformed Britain. There was trade, there was discovery, there was navigation and charting. And I think sometimes these are overlooked in the sort of general focus on war. So we've got Cook's voyages to the South Seas. We've got the East India Company's business in India and China. Uh, and ultimately, of course, the voyages of uh, the Enlightenment with Darwin and the Beagle. And all are absolutely dependent upon this individual, the common seaman, Jack Tar, as we generally know him. 
is it possible to make a judgment about what proportion would have volunteered or, or you know been been willing to go to sea and what because there was some press ganging wasn't there oh absolutely uh, and never more so than at times of war because you've got these huge paradoxes between at the time the times of peace when really uh, there is no need for the navy to be having uh, a large uh, a crew at hand uh, which have accounts for the fact that there wasn't a standing force of, of naval crewmen. Uh, and once a conflict broke out, those men who had been serving and earning quite handsome wages generally on sometimes on the coastal trade, but more specifically on the uh, uh, East India Company's business in India, they would suddenly be at at times of, of war, be dragged off ships uh, and, uh, and forced, of course, to serve in the Navy for lower wages uh, and all the things that went with naval service. But I think one really does need to retain the sense of a kind of independence that these men had. Uh, essentially, you know, they, they may be press-ganged, but if they didn't like a ship and if they didn't like where they found themselves, they could desert and they very often did. And of course, that was a dangerous business. But at the same time, uh, they very often got away with it because if there was a need for seamen as so often there was, they would find themselves in another port and they would find themselves another, another captain. And the captain, because of the need in finding these kind of these, these skilled men, because their skills were great, and we could discuss that at some length, uh, were um, always in demand. Um, I think as well, you know, we, 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 if we go back to the sense of, you know, the um, uh, serving in the Navy, it was a tough business. There was flogging and flogging was obviously <laughs> a process of suffering in itself. But this was after all a time when um, sailing was booming, uh, agriculture was in decline. And a man who learnt the ropes as a sailor, he acquired a skill that was almost always uh, in demand. Uh, and at the same time, he had a place to sleep. Uh, he was provided with food. Uh, and one might add, he was also provided with large quantities of drink. Uh, so, <clears throat> you know, um, he knows that this is a tough life, but he finds himself in a, in a group with whom he forms a bond. There is a brotherhood uh, and one... Uh, we might say this is a somewhat romantic notion. But actually, I think the record speaks, if you look at not only the success of so many of the aspects of British seafaring, which was really covering the world at that time, you only have to look at the records uh, of British ships in battle against whoever it was. So whatever form of seafaring we're talking about, these men had an absolute conviction what they were doing, they were doing well. And, and also, you, you don't you don't want to um, you don't want lots of landlubbers. You don't want to just grab any old person off the street, do you? you? You need people that know how to sail. I mean, these are highly sophisticated pieces of machinery that you're sailing around the world. Absolutely. So there's a tier. You know, we we get the <clears throat> the chap who comes on as a landsman. Now, he is the most junior seaman, but in the process of as it were, pulling on ropes and helping his crewmen, he learns a series of skills which culminate in his rise from the lowest tier to an ordinary seaman and ultimately to the able seaman, a man who is in fact esteemed by his, his fellows, uh, is 
valued uh, by his officers simply because he is absolutely key when it comes to that extraordinary business of going up into the tops. I think this is possibly an experience of which you have some experience yourself, Dan. Um, and actually finding yourself uh, up there uh, at the you know, 100 feet above a swaying deck, uh, your feet on ropes and swaying uh, between uh, uh, 60 degrees on either side, but all the time looking upon, uh, onto this extraordinary, magnificent scene that is this element, which is your world, and which in a way works into the kind of poetic side that one sees emerging through seamen's stories, uh, through their writings. I think we have a, another misconception that these men because they were common folk of their time, could not possibly be uh, literate. In fact, uh, we have got a number of records, 12 absolutely key uh, memoirs, journals, published, unpublished, and another oh, 10, 15 lesser uh, journals, but still also filling in some of those gaps. And here is the seaman as a storyteller who senses there is something very special about his world. He doesn't really feel very much in common with the other commoners uh, of his home soil. So he comes back from exotic parts of the world. Not invariably exotic, but he might have been to the South Seas, he might have been to China, he might have been to India. And he comes back with these extraordinary stories, his experiences, encounters, strange creatures... Um, there are a range of uh, stories which, you can, which, which come back in this process and which are spelt out in these memoirs. Some of them quite romantic, romantic encounters with women in the South Seas, for example, island women renowned for their beauty. There's another, there's a particularly interesting example um, of a seaman who was serving on the, uh, on the sh ships which were taking convicts to New South Wales. And um, a very romantic story attaches to that, which we can discuss, if you like. Yeah, well, tell us some of these stories, because I think that what, what, are, the, what are these sources? Are, are they, were they written for the consumer, uh, the consumer market, uh, published sources? Are, are, they, are they private diaries? Where, where are you finding these accounts? Well, I think they're, um, they're, they're two particularly interesting characters. Uh, there was a period after the, uh, if you like, sort of the Great Age of Sail, which culminates, of course, in the uh, revolutionary and Napoleonic wars, when there was a recognition that the seamen had played a key part in, the, in these great victories, uh, the things that are celebrated in the Maritime Museum at Greenwich, you know, all these wonderful canvases of epauletted officers, gold epauletted officers, and their magnificent ships sailing along under, uh, under sail in storms or in battle. But there was also a story to be told by those who had obviously served in these ships. So there was a small-scale uh, publishing industry. We can take, for example, one of those individuals, a man named John Nicholl, uh, a most uh, a very interesting uh, Scot, uh, a thoughtful romantic, you might say. 
And he was actually taken uh, to, to sea by reading Robinson Crusoe. Slightly odd one might think, you know, why go to sea in order to become a castaway? Uh, but uh, there was that open door to adventure that these stories opened up to, uh, to, to men like Nicol. And he then spent decades on naval uh, and merchant ships. He was the guns at the Battle of the Nile. Uh, he was also just a natural adventurer who wanted to visit exotic parts of the world and who was um, exhilarated by the experiences he had of visiting China and the South Seas. Uh, he was also, and this is quite an interesting aspect of what I would see as Jack's character, um, he was quite unworldly. He was on the Lady Juliana, one of the ships transporting uh, convicts to New South Wales, and fell completely in love with one of the fris female prisoners. Now, there was quite a lot of actually, what might be say, sexual experiences between the convicts and the seamen on these ships. So far as John Nicholl was concerned, this was the love of his life. Uh, she, in fact, Sarah, bore him a child by the time that they landed in New South Wales. And <clears throat> although he might have been uh, moved by this uh, experience to desert, he was a very loyal man on his ship, so he sailed on but always came back with the intention of finding Sarah. And he did actually spend years on a quest, sailing to India, sailing back to New South Wales, only to discover uh, that she had, as one might say, uh, as many seamen had a, an instinct for survival, she needed an instinct for survival, and she found another man who could help to support her. So <clears throat> we've got men like Nicol on the one hand, as I say, romantic, somewhat unworldly, and yet on the other hand, another journal kept by another seaman reflects a different aspect of, of Jack's character. So whereas Nicol was a Scot, uh, a man named Jacob Nagel was an American who actually fought for um, his country's independence before, uh, before he decided that the Royal Navy was a perfectly good place for him to serve. And he then spent decades uh, sailing with British ships of all kinds. And, you know, he's a, he's a complete rumbustious character. You know, he's quick with his fists. He's loves a night out when he's full pay with his, uh, with his shipmates when they come to shore. His relationship with women are generally, uh, as is the case with so many uh, seamen, uh, a commercial kind, but he's generous, thoughtful. He understands that they've got their difficulties too, the lasses who are working in Portsmouth, the Portsmouth Poles. He always treats them with generosity. And if we study these, let's just take these two journals, you read these stories and you might be inclined to say, this is a, you know, this is a good story, but is it possibly true? Because they do tell extraordinary tales, cast away, being cast away, shipwreck and all the other things. And yet if you go to the maritime records at Kew, the National Archives, and you study the ship's logs, the ship's musters, which record all the crew who were ship on a ship at a particular time, and you match those with these individuals who've left their memoirs subsequently be, to be published, you find that they match. There you will find on that ship's muster, Jacob Nagel, or in the case of John, John Nicol, and all the others who 
whose uh, memoirs, journals, published or not, uh, who I drew upon for the sources. Uh, if I, I would just give one particular interesting case in point, um, just again to emphasize the variety of individuals who came on to these onto ships. There's after uh, an old hand named uh, James Choice died at a lodging house in Brighton in 1836, it was found that he had kept a journal. And although it's written in a rather wooden style, it does tell another astonishing story, how he was taken off a, a prisoner off a whaler in Peru while he was little more than a boy, how he survived at the very edge in South America, made various uh, escape attempts, uh, had a brief career as a pirate, uh, and then another spell in captivity, this time in France. And at that point, he writes in his journal, I disowned the name of an Englishman, as it had always been so unlucky to me, and joined the enemy, reasoning who would not fight for so good a master as Bonaparte. Well, <laughs> he then writes of how, and this is why he's still serving with the French, on sighting a British squadron at anchor off Brittany, he stole a boat and rode out to a ship called the Theseus. Now, at this point, you say, this is pushing it a bit too far. This must be a fantasy. But if you go to the log of the Theseus, it, there it is entered and it confirms that a man named James Choice had been welcomed up the side, as he explained, after escaping from a French prisoner. So again, one finds that these sort of hair-raising and extraordinary stories actually fit so often into the records, which spread the wider picture, if you like. Um, sea, bat sea battles were rare, but they sounded extremely dangerous, Ter terrifying to be on board a wooden ship as, as uh, giant cannonballs and, uh, are smashing through great planks of oak and spreading sending splinters somersaulting through the air. Yes, I think uh, clearly the, um, the wounds that were um, inflicted in these kind of circumstances, very often not by cannonballs themselves directly, but by the splinters that they generated as they exploded coming through a side or hitting some part of the ship. The wounds that were uh, taken in these kind of uh, uh, in these circumstances, were, as you say, very horrifying. There's a, a lot of kind of um, this, the the telling of these stories quite often has a head-off variety. You know, you'll hear about so and so, and I, he was standing beside me, and his head disappeared. I think that becomes a bit of a, if you like, a disguise for the um, really rather terrible wounds that could be inflicted on these occasions. And there was at the same time, uh, in the intensity of this battle, a confusion, because very often the men were very unable to see much more than the powder at hand, the ball that had to be loaded, and the cannon that they were serving upon. <clears throat> so it was an intense um, but relatively brief affair as it was seen by, for example, those military men, army officers who had some experience of seeing naval battles, actually thought, well, uh, I, I wouldn't mind having a part in that because it's bloody, but it's brief. And that was, in, I think, the sense that, um, that 
the intensity that British sailors brought to that activity, the speed that they were, with which they were able to load a cannon and fire it and the accuracy which they did uh, was so crucial to the success. Not so much of, well, tactics were clearly important, but it was actually the effectiveness of, of the British ship in battle that was so key. And there is quite an interesting little extract, uh, which I might read if you like, because it comes from um, a French officer who was at Trafalgar, and um, he, uh, he surrendered uh, and found, of course, that on surrendering his ship, a British crew came on board uh, to take control. And as we know, uh, Trafalgar, the battle itself, was followed by the most furious storm. Uh, and as he described it, they, the British seamen, immediately set to work to shorten sail and reef in topsails with as much regularity and order as if their ships had not been fighting a dreadful battle. We were all amazement, wondering what the English sailor could be made of. All our seamen were drunk or disabled. Yeah, and I'm rem reminded after the Battle of the Saints at the uh, end of the American War of Independence, when the French commander just says the 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 British are a hundred years ahead of us. Um, the, the, it's, it's remarkable. You wouldn't want to be fighting against the Royal Navy in this period. What about, what about meritocracy? Uh, uh, Captain Cook obviously joins as a, an ordinary seaman and rises up through the ranks. I think Admiral Sanders does at Quebec. He, he was a um, former uh, common seaman. Um, are you more likely to be promoted and grow wealthy that if, if you're from a humble background than their equivalents in the army? I think there was something uh, about the nature of naval life, if we're talking about, and we are clearly talking about the Navy, about the nature of life on board, <clears throat> where, of course, we're talking about a very limited space, which created a degree of intimacy uh, between the officer class and the, the lower deck. I mean, you couldn't, on a space which was no more than 50 metres by about, and at about 12, 13 metres, sustain a huge social difference, as you did, for example, on the landed class between the, uh, the landowner and his, uh, and his commoner labourers. And because perhaps of that sense that um, there was a community here working together, there was a greater a degree of rising from the lower deck. Not uh, very widespread, but you mentioned those examples, there's another very interesting example uh, of, indeed, one of the most uh, famous of our commanders, Edward Pellew, who was, uh, you know, he was, a, he was a Cornish boy, grew up by the seaside, just immediately, because this was his world, drawn to the sea. And uh, probably because of his, uh, his initiative, his strength, his skill, uh, and his robustness of character attracted attention in a way that would have br did bring him the kind of sponsorship that rose him into a, an officer level at a fairly early stage in his life. Uh, I think he was promoted to lieutenant when he was about 21. 
because he didn't have the kind of sponsorship, the kind of, as it was said, influence that was generally required to go all the way to the top. He was then set aside and it took a series of extraordinary fortunate events for him and the uh, eagerness and the talent with which he seized those opportunities to become, first of all, uh, probably, in my view, uh, the most successful frigate captain of that, of that era. And ultimately, because of that and because he did actually have huge abilities, uh, despite the fact that he would generally spoil his, spoil his, his influence at, uh, at Westminster sooner or later, and quite regularly did, he still rose to the level of admiral. And then lastly, did they tend... Were they pensioned off? How did how did the story end for most of them? Did they just they did die of old age and, and hardship on board, or or did they have successful afterlives? Well, I suppose there is many uh, answers to that uh, particular aspect of their story, uh, as there are, are individuals themselves. I mean, yes, a great number uh, ended up in severe uh, difficulties. Take for example. Uh, John Nicol, who I mentioned earlier, the romantic seaman of, uh, of that particular period, the great adventurous wanderer. He was actually found uh, scrabbling on the streets of Edinburgh, looking for coals to keep himself warm by, uh, in effect, a, a local journalist who recognised that here was a man who had an extraordinary story to tell. Uh, it didn't greatly help Nicol, but it removed him from that degree of poverty. Uh, Jacob Nagel also ended up in, um, in severe shortage at the same time. We must remember that one of the great institutions which was founded by the Navy at the time was the Pensioners' Refuge at Greenwich. It was always said uh, that those who were fortunate enough to uh, end up uh, in, uh, in that old, wonderful, what was called the Naval Hospital, uh, was safe moored in Greenwich Pier. And you had to have a certain series of, uh, you had to have a period of service that would entitle you uh, to a place there. Uh, it wasn't always easy to obtain that. You had to report to a series of boards uh, and present your documents. And if you didn't have that documents, those documents, and you weren't able to prove your, as it were, your service, uh, you would be discarded. But those who did find themselves in Greenwich could not uh, have been more, as it were, favoured. And they became a, a kind of a, a visitor centre for people who became interested in the maritime past. They would go down to uh, Greenwich and they would speak to these old pensioners, ask them to spend their stories. One of those who they might have found down there, very interesting character as well, uh, is a man named Tom Allen. Now, actually, if you go to Greenwich, uh, there at the Maritime Museum, among all the wonderful canvases all around, tucked away uh, on a side wall is a painting, a portrait of Tom Allen. And Tom is owes his place in history to a particular association. He actually started out as a ploughman in Norfolk 
uh, until he was spotted by uh, a local family. Uh, and uh, the family's name was Nelson. Uh, the individual who spotted him was named Horatio. And Horatio Nelson at that time was a relatively junior captain, but he needed crew. And so often these local resources provided a kind of, if you like, supply chain. It was a very effective ship supply chain because these were men who shared a community, they shared a background. And so Tom Allen, having been taken on board by Nelson, then just a captain, became his servant and stayed with him for years, uh, and would accompany him uh, into the great cabin for dinners, actually had a, a degree of informal relationship with Nelson that somewhat astonished visitors because he would be telling Nelson that he'd had enough wine and it was time for him to retire. Uh, he, he actually overstepped the mark in the end, but he, uh, because of his long service, was one of those who did end up at Greenwich and who would be spinning his yarns, his years uh, of service under the great man to anybody interested to come down uh, to Greenwich and ask those kind of questions. He would certainly have been allowed on the podcast, I'll tell you that much. Thank you so much. Your, your book is called... Sons of the Waves, The Common Man at Sea in the Heroic Age of Sail. Brilliant. Well, good luck with it. Thank you very much. Thank you, Dan. Good luck to you. I feel the hand of history upon our shoulders. All this tradition of ours, our school history, our songs, this part of the history of our country, all were gone and finished and liquidated. One child, one teacher, one book and one pen can change the world. He tells us what is possible, not just in the pages of history books, but in our own lives as well. I have faith in you.